Hi everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the good fortune to live outside the United States for a while, which puts me in a good position, I think, to reflect for my American audience on some events of note that are going on outside of the country. I really don't want to be recording this episode right now, but here we are. So John McCain was famous for repeating a quote from Chairman Mao, who apparently said, it's always darkest before it's completely black. It's been pretty dark for a while now. In the last few weeks, we've seen right-wing media personalities and the president defending vigilantes executing protesters in the street. We've just hit 200,000 coronavirus deaths while the president continues to hold super spreader events, really, in the form of political rallies. And it seems that the entire West Coast of the United States is on fire. And now we've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'll leave it to people who know more about Ruth Bader Ginsburg than I do to go into more detail about the amazing career and life that she led, about her pioneering work in gender equality and in a number of other issues, and the various ways in which she improved the world that we're all living in. Her loss is obviously a profound tragedy for all of us who care about the issue she dedicated her life to, and who have frankly been rooting for her for years as she tried to hold on in order that she get what we now know was her dying wish, that her successor be picked by the next president, rather than one who was elected with the help of a foreign adversary who's spent his entire term spitting on the rule of law to which she dedicated her entire life. Unfortunately, there are additional implications of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death beyond just the human tragedy of her passing. I desperately hope that I'm wrong about this, and I feel dirty thinking in these political terms just a day after losing a national hero, but this is the world we're living in. And I'm afraid that from a political standpoint, RBG's passing represents possibly the single worst thing that's happened to the Democrats this election cycle, whether her replacement is rammed through before the election or after. As much as I'd like to hope that we'll be able to somehow make good on RBG's dying wish and have her seat filled by President Biden instead of the current occupant of the Oval Office, I just don't have a lot of hope that we're going to be able to do that. Whether Trump nominates a quote-unquote serious person like this Amy Barrett whose name I keep hearing, or someone Trump's seen on TV during his executive time like Fox News Judge Janine Boxawine Pirro, the Republicans are going to confirm this person. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader and America's premier giant tortoise impersonator, is the single most dangerously ruthless, amoral hypocrite in Washington, D.C., and he simply does not care that you or I know that. He welcomes our hatred. Our collective revulsion gets him up and into his shell in the morning. He drinks our liberal tears with his cereal. McConnell has been really open about the fact that he only responds to raw political power, nothing else. The rule that he pulled out of thin air in 2016 to stop Obama from putting Merrick Garland on the bench, he's waved that away while RBG's body is still warm. Under Trump, McConnell has turned the Senate into an epic rubber stamp for judges. Despite a number of embarrassing moments where almost comically underqualified people nominated for judgeships by Trump have then made asses of themselves under basic questioning by the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Republicans have confirmed virtually all of them, to the point where something like 25% of the entire federal judiciary at this point are Trump appointees. As I'll get into more in a minute, 
One of the things which quote-unquote principled conservatives have hung their hat on during the Trump presidency when confronted with Trump's misdeeds has been, yeah, but Gorsuch, which is to say, we don't like the anti-free trade stuff or the weakness on foreign policy, and we're embarrassed by the tweets, but look at all these judges we're getting. Lindsey Graham is already starting to walk back things he said about not confirming somebody super close to an election. And I really don't think we're going to find four Republican senators who will put integrity ahead of a chance to stack the court with a 6-3 majority. Dreams of Susan Collins riding in at the last minute to save American democracy died long ago. One of the reasons this tragic loss matters in the context of the upcoming election is the way in which Republican voters think about the courts. Now, I admit, I have no evidence to back this up, but I feel like Democratic voters on average have a better understanding, or at least a, a deeper interest in policy issues than the average Republican voter. But Republican voters, for a long time, have tended to have a much more practical and strategic understanding of power dynamics than Democratic voters. This is how you get a whole bunch of conservatives, and especially evangelicals, in 2016 holding their nose and voting for a famously unscrupulous, dishonest, thrice-married porn star aficionado, while a bunch of uh, progressives stayed home because Hillary wasn't sufficiently pure for them. Despite conservatives sometimes railing against unelected judges when they hand down rulings they don't like, like during the civil rights era, for a couple of generations, Republicans have been training their voters to understand the importance of judges to their agenda. That's created a number of conservative voters who really care about the makeup of the courts. By stealing the seat vacated by Scalia in 2016, McConnell not only got to manipulate the makeup of the court, he was able to elevate the issue of courts in that election. As we saw, a number of conservatives will vote for candidates they consider flawed because they understand the importance of appointing judges they like. Democratic voters, unfortunately, often really just don't seem as capable of channeling this kind of political realism. Rick Wilson, a founder of the Lincoln Project who spent his past life as a Republican master of campaign hardball beating the living crap out of Democrats, recently put out a book that's basically a roadmap for how Democrats could be better at politics and, of course, beat Trump. In it, he noted that Democratic voters seem to need to fall in love with a super charismatic candidate, or are easily distracted by shiny objects, nitpicking over small disagreements with one particular policy issue to the detriment of all the other ones. Hey everybody, before we continue with the episode, I just wanted to take a second to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling really charitable, to share it with some other people you think might like it. That way you won't miss an episode, and as the show is just getting off the ground, it's really helpful for getting the word out to other potential listeners. Thanks! Okay, now back to the disaster that is American politics. So as much as I hope I'm wrong, I really think this is going to happen. Trump, McConnell, the other Senate Republicans, they're going to do this. The only question now is whether they do it before or after the election. So let's take a second to examine the implications of both possibilities. If Trump and McConnell decide to wait until after the election... The Republicans will be able to dangle judges in front of conservative voters who are considering either staying home or maybe even jumping the fence to vote for Biden. For some of the reasons I outlined before, I'm afraid this could end up being pretty effective at reversing the progress made by groups like Republican voters against Trump and others that have persuaded some more principled conservatives to put country over party. But let's say that in the end that isn't effective. Trump still loses. Biden manages to pull off a victory 
and then get through an unprecedentedly rocky transition period, which, let's be realistic, could very well involve some violence from Trump supporters after Trump inevitably launches a tweet storm saying that the election was rigged very strongly and calls on his supporters to exercise your beautiful Second Amendment, we love the Second Amendment, to defend your favorite president and the Constitution very bigly, great Constitution, we love the Constitution. Even if in this scenario Democrats had also managed to take the Senate, Mitch McConnell will absolutely force through some prepubescent Federalist Society intern during the lame duck period, and the new 6-3 to three right-wing majority will castrate Biden's agenda unless some serious efforts are undertaken to immediately reform the judiciary during Biden's first term. Now let's imagine a scenario where Trump and McConnell decide that they want to go as quickly as possible and try to get Justice Giuliani confirmed before the election. My suspicion is that gratitude to Trump for getting another Republican operative installed on the highest court in the land will ultimately be a less effective political motivator for turning out conservatives than the possibility that he might do it after the election. You know, if we stop the radical, really radical left, Democrat party, terrible, really bad people, really bad people, they hate our country. I've heard some suggest that senators in tough races will be punished by voters for rushing through a confirmation before the election. But as I mentioned earlier, Conservative voters are the ones who tend to care about and vote on and understand the importance of courts, not liberals as much. And conservative voters like the people Trump has appointed. Yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg became a cult hero to the left over the last decade or so, and for the Senate to ram through some atrocious successor would be an insult to her memory. But the people who own notorious RBG shirts are probably already going to be voting Democrat. So... While the revenge against Republican senators factor is likely to be a huge fundraising asset and already has proven to be so far, I'm just not convinced that it'll translate into any actual votes in those races, with the possible exception of the Collins race in Maine. Besides the question of how the elevation of a new right-wing justice will influence the way people vote, their presence on the court could have a really big impact on how those votes are ultimately counted. George Bush became president after 2000 despite Al Gore winning more votes, because the Supreme Court intervened on his behalf in the Florida recount, because Florida Democrats were somehow unable to correctly poke a hole through a piece of paper, the entire election was changed by one Supreme Court decision in one state. Now, I'm pretty sure I already did an episode that touches on how complicated voting is going to be this year. If you haven't yet listened to The Democrats versus The Anti-Democrats, go check it out. Unfortunately, it has aged well. Besides all the logistical complications that have arisen from Republican efforts to sabotage the vote and the pandemic, we have a president who has spent months undermining the legitimacy of the election and spent nearly his entire adult life launching ridiculous lawsuits. Remember when he sued Bill Maher for asking to prove he's not the spawn of an orangutan? We're likely to see Florida recount-style shenanigans, along with armed Trump supporters in the streets, of course, in a whole lot of swing states this year and it's very possible that the Supreme Court will matter in those legal fights. So now's another great time to thank purists who in 2016 stayed home because they didn't find Hillary Clinton sufficiently appealing to bother to vote against Donald Trump. Bottom line, I think the Republicans can bring home more of their wayward voters by waiting until after the election. But on the other hand, getting some Republican hack on the bench before the election could have really serious implications for how the votes get counted. Even if Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate, the new 6-3 to right-wing majority on the Supreme Court will wreak havoc on his agenda, 
the Democrats need to think about putting some really substantial judiciary reforms at the top of their agenda in the spring of 2021. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. I certainly hope I am. Maybe four Republican senators will suddenly find the integrity they've worked so hard to repress in service of a completely unfit president, the seat will stay open until Biden is sworn in, and the new Democratic Senate will confirm Loretta Lynch to the seat. Maybe Justice Kavanaugh will resign from the bench to elope after a torrid affair with a keg of Miller Lite, I like beer, and will be able to start righting the profound wrong that about half of our Supreme Court justices have been appointed by a president whose opponent got more votes than they did. But I doubt it. It's always darkest before it's completely black. I can barely see, and I'm not even living under the great West Coast ash cloud. That's all for this episode of OK Talks. If you've liked the show so far, please hit subscribe. There are no emails involved, I promise. And take a second to rate it or leave a comment or, you know, spam it to all of your friends. It really is helpful and I really do appreciate it. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for his technical advice and for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, if you're in the U.S., please make a plan to vote. And if you're not, please pester every American friend you know until they do. Till the next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.